0: Everybody, if you'll please take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 10, as been referenced. Have you all ever heard the expression, you can't get there from here? If you've ever driven around in Atlanta, you know what that means. And it's also true if you've ever been to New Orleans. Now, one thing I learned in New Orleans is is oftentimes you can't get there from here. They've got weird traffic rules and laws and things that you can't make left turns and all kinds of crazy stuff. You have to do all this doubling back, and sometimes you just can't get there from here. Now, I saw this picture. This is in Florida. Go figure. Uh, Is it west or is it east? Is it 482 or is it Interstate 4? And then it says, stop, you can't turn here. So, I mean, sometimes you see signs like this and it gets a little conflicting, right? You know, how do we get there? You can't get there from here. Some people think that Christianity is like this. That the path to heaven, the way to... Be saved is like this. People get confused by it. They don't understand the Gospel. They think there are too many rules to follow. And maybe that's because we don't do a very good job of communicating the Gospel because nothing can be further from the truth. Nothing can be further from the truth. Yes, the way of Christ is a narrow path, but it's a straight and simple path. The Gospel is so simple, even children can understand it enough to believe and be saved. Our problem is that we make it too complicated. And our problem is that we put roadblocks on the path to God. You know, It's like you put directions in your GPS and you know where you're going and you think you're going to get there on time and there's road construction, right? And there's a detour. And you see all the flashing lights and the orange cones. There are roadblocks that get in the way that make it harder, that make it more difficult. We put up roadblocks that make following Jesus harder than it has to be. And in today's story, Jesus reveals four roadblocks that can keep us from entering God's kingdom, that can keep us from experiencing His forgiving mercy and grace, that can keep us from really enjoying the abundant, eternal life that Jesus came to give us. And if you think that you can come to God and still keep these things in your life, I've got bad news for you. You can't get there from here. You can't get there from here if you want to keep these in your life. So let's look at the story. I'm going to just read right through all of this. We'll come back and we'll look at these four roadblocks. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. People were bringing the little children to Him in order that He might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to Me. Don't stop them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, so this might have been later that day or the next day, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were more astonished, saying to one another, then, who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, go back up to the first passage there, the one that Ben was focusing on there at the beginning, the the children that come to Jesus. And here we see that the first roadblock that we have to overcome is the roadblock of pride. The roadblock of pride. Now, it was common for Jewish people to bring their children to rabbis, to have the rabbis lay their hands on their children and bless them. This was part of that Abrahamic blessing that was passed down from father to child throughout the generations of the Jewish people. This was important to them. So the disciples weren't dismissive of the idea of blessing the children. They were dismissive of Jesus consuming his time with this. There were other rabbis who could do that. Don't bother Jesus. He's too busy. He's too important to bother himself with this most insignificant member of Jewish society. I mean, how is blessing children going to fulfill his messianic mission, right? He's got bigger fish to fry than this. And the disciples probably thought they were doing Jesus a favor, you know, Jesus often was trying to avoid the crowd, so they thought they were doing the right thing. But this just shows us, once again, how obtuse the twelve could be. They've already forgotten what Jesus was teaching them just a little while ago, back in Mark nine thirty-seven. remember? Jesus said, whoever welcomes one little child, such as this in my arms, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Jesus made a point just a little while ago about the importance of welcoming children. And so Jesus gets indignant, deeply angry. The Greek word indignant there means to shake or quiver with anger. And Jesus was literally shaking. He was so angry at them for this. And you can tell a lot about somebody, about what makes them really angry. And here we see that Jesus really does love deeply the least of these. He really does care about the poor, about the the, the children, about the least in society. They matter to Jesus. Jesus really does love the little children. All the children of the world, they truly are precious in His sight. So precious, He goes beyond what the parents expected. He didn't just lay His hands on them. He embraces them in His arms and blesses them. And then Jesus rebukes the disciples. So as He's blessing the children, He's rebuking the disciples. Now that Greek word is a pretty harsh word. It's the same word that's used in Mark when Jesus casts out a demon. It's the same used word, word used when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves to calm the storm. It's the same word used when Jesus chastised Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. So here Jesus, once again, reserves some of His harshest words for the disciples. It's a big deal. I can only imagine how frustrated Jesus was with them that they still didn't get it. They still didn't get that the kingdom of God is for everyone. There are no important or unimportant people in the kingdom of God. It's for everyone. Whosoever will may come, whether you're outcasts or Gentiles, whether you're unclean or sinners, whether you're women or children, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We all stand the same. Or as Jesus says in John six thirty seven, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. If you come to Jesus in repentance and repent of his faith, He will never turn you away. He will never cast you out no matter who you are. The disciples, though, were still thinking in worldly terms about what makes people valuable, what gives them worth. They were tripping over this roadblock of pride. And Jesus demonstrates that self-importance gets in the way of childlike faith. Look at verse 15. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, the question is, how are we to be like children? What qualities of children does Jesus want us to emulate here? Is it their innocence? Their sense of wonder? The purity of their hearts? The simplicity of their motives? Is it how easy children tend to believe things? What is it about children we're to be like? He says be childlike, by the way, not childish. Some of us misunderstand that, right? Childlike. (laughs) We have to understand the term for child used here is the term that means a young child, even an infant. This word is never used of somebody over the age of accountability, which in Jewish faith is 12 years old. It's never used of like like adolescents or older children. It's always young children. And this suggests to us that Jesus isn't pointing to some virtue that children possess. Rather, I think Jesus is pointing out what children lack. Children are helpless. They're powerless. They come with empty hands. Children need things. We talked about this the other week. Children don't produce, they consume. They're needy. As one commentary put it, children don't bring credits, clout, or claims to the table. They have no wisdom, no sophistication, no power. That is how we must see ourselves. If the kingdom of God is to be ours, like a small child, we have to admit that we have nothing of worth or value to bring to God's kingdom. We come with empty hands. We can't earn our way there. Rather, we have to receive it, like a child. That's what he said. Receive the kingdom, like a child. How does a child receive a gift? Yeah, you know, they open it up. Ben was talking about. They get so excited, right? Children anticipate it. They're eager for it. They're joyous about it. There, there, there's few things as fun as watching a child on Christmas morning tear into those presents or at a birthday, right? It's, it's a wonderful thing. Also, it's kind of, there's nothing quite as trying as a child in the days leading up to Christmas, right? I mean, they're, they're counting down the days. They're trying to sneak a peek at the presents. They're, they're shaking the boxes. You know, they've just got such an eager anticipation of those gifts. And Jesus wants us to have that same kind of anticipation the kingdom of God. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. We're to pray as Christians have done for two millennia. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, to receive God's kingdom like a child. is to receive it with anticipation and eagerness. It's also to receive it with joy and thanksgiving. You know one way you can tell that a child has been spoiled? They don't show appreciation for the gifts they get, right? They're not as joyous about it. They don't thank the person who gave it to them. And why is that? Because they've come to believe they're entitled to it. They've come to expect, even demand the gift. They think they deserve it, therefore they don't appreciate it. Some of us are like that. But to truly be childlike is to be surprised by grace. It's to understand that we don't deserve the gift, that we're not entitled to anything, that whatever God gives us is not based on our merits, but on our neediness. Childlike faith receives the gift as an act of love from the heart of the giver. It's not something we demand. It's not something that we believe we're entitled to because of anything that we have done. Maybe we need to ask the Lord to remove the roadblock of pride from our life. Consider your own heart. Do you ever think that, that God owes you anything? Maybe because of who you are? because of your credentials and accomplishments, because of who your family is in the community or in the church. Remember, God exalts the lowly, but He humbles the proud. And maybe some of us need to pray and ask God to humble us and to remind us of who we are, that apart from Jesus Christ, we're all wretched sinners. The roadblock of pride gets in our way. Secondly, the roadblock of performance. And that brings us to the rich, young ruler. Matthew tells us he was a young man. Luke tells us he was a ruler. All three with Mark agree that he was a man of wealth. Particularly, he owned possessions. He owned land specifically. If you look at 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 the Greek, he was a landowner, which meant he really was a person of influence and power. If you owned land in that day, that was a big deal. And this wealthy official comes to Jesus with earnestness. I think he's earnest in his desire to follow Jesus. Notice that he runs to Jesus, which was a a shameful thing for a Jewish man to do. They would never run. It was undignified. And then he bows down to Jesus, which was also a no-no. You weren't to bow to anyone but God or His King. So this man really does show earnestness and humility as he comes to Jesus. And then, on top of bowing to Jesus, which you should never do to anybody, he calls him good. He says, good teacher. And You weren't supposed to call anyone good except God. Only God is good. It was blasphemy to call anyone else good. Specifically, the Greek word good used here, which means intrinsically good. It means good without any external standard by which to, to measure it. And only God is worthy of being referred to in that kind of self-referential, intrinsic goodness. Only God is good, and the things God declares good are good. Apart from Him, there is no goodness. We, We see this in Psalm 14. The psalmist says, There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's anyone who understand, who seek after God. And they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt." There is no one who does good, not even one. So this man in coming to Jesus like this, it makes you wonder, could this man somehow have come to the realization that Jesus, maybe he had the same realization as Peter, has he come to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Has he come to understand that Jesus is the only one who can be called good in the way that God can be? And was this man prepared to back up those claims with his actions? So Jesus decides to test the man. And he says to him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now Jesus, some people say, oh, Jesus is denying his divinity. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not denying his divinity. Jesus wanted to see if this man truly believed that Jesus was intrinsically good the way only God can be. In other words, is this man being superficial in his faith or is he trying to flatter Jesus somehow? Well, certainly this man is superficial when it comes to his understanding of goodness and righteousness. His was a shallow, performance, works-based view of salvation. And so Jesus further tested him by pointing out the law of Moses. He mentioned some of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's interesting to notice which Ten Commandments does Jesus list. He doesn't list all ten. And he throws in one that's not even in the Ten Commandments. All the commands that Jesus lists here are external commands. They're commands about the way we treat other people. Our parents. Are we committing adultery? Are we lying, stealing, murdering, defrauding people? They're all external commands about how we treat people. Jesus leaves out the internal commands about our walk with God. And why is that? Because the way we obey the horizontal commands with our relationships with others reflects the status of our vertical relationship with God. John put it this way in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So how we love and treat others really is a reflection of how we love, trust, and obey God. Loving God and loving people are inseparable. And let's be honest, it's easy to fake worship, isn't it? It's easy to convince people around you that you really love God and you're pious and you're devoted. But when it comes to the way you treat other people, there's no fooling. That's visible for all the world to see how we treat the people around us. But even to these commands, the man says, I've kept all these since I was a youth. Now, some people look at that and say, well, this man obviously is lying, he's deceived, he's prideful, he's a hypocrite. But notice that Jesus doesn't challenge the man's claim. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't laugh and say, well, what about this morning when you did such and such? I mean, he doesn't do that. He doesn't call the man out. Maybe this man really was that faithful at keeping these commands. Maybe this man was one of those rare people like Noah or Abraham who... Really was godly and righteous. And and we're going to come back to that whole idea in a few minutes. But also notice that not only does Jesus not rebuke the man, the text says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now let me ask you this Does Jesus ever look at arrogance and pride and hypocrisy and love it? No. This man, listen, this man hadn't pulled the wool over Jesus' eyes either. The word "look there means to look intently. It means to study and scrutinize. Jesus, It's like Jesus was looking into this man's soul. and Jesus took in everything about who this man was, everything this man had done, and he loved him still. By the way, this is the only time in Mark's gospel where Mark says Jesus loved someone. Now, of course we know Jesus loves everybody, right? And none of us deserve his love, but it's significant that in Mark's gospel, the only time it says Jesus loved was here. Why? Why this man? What's going on here? Well, remember the passage right before this, right? Jesus challenged the disciples to remember and to to receive the kingdom of God like children. Maybe that's what Jesus saw in this man. It wasn't arrogance. It was a childlike eagerness. This man had a childlike earnestness for the kingdom of God. He was anticipating God's kingdom like a child anticipates Christmas. What this man failed to understand was the kingdom of God can't be earned. It can only be received as a gift. The issue was this man's concept of goodness. Remember he called Jesus good teacher? Jesus challenges it. This man has a faulty view of goodness. He believed that goodness was about performance. Goodness was based on what you do. It was based, Your goodness was based on the goodness of the works that you do. So maybe Jesus looked at this man and loved him because Jesus had sympathy for him. Sympathy that this man actually believed you could keep the law. He actually believed that the law was keepable. Which goes back to Jesus' words. No one is good except God alone. No one's good. This man's not good. That's why Jesus told this man he still lacked something. He says, one thing you lack. Even though this man believed he'd kept all the commandments, he still lacked something. We can be just like this man. We can trip over the roadblock of performance, which really is about self righteousness. And self righteousness keeps us from experiencing God's grace. I think this man understood this deep down inside, though, because when he came up to Jesus, he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? So even though this man believed that he had kept the law, he still understood there was something else, there was something missing, he was lacking. Whenever we base our salvation on our works, whenever we think that we have to earn God's love and favor, we're going to feel like something's missing. We're going to feel like something's lacking. We're going to live in constant doubt because there's no security if it's all about me and how good of a job I'm doing. We feel like we've fallen short because we have. We're fearful in the end that God really won't accept us. Because if we're basing it on our goodness, you won't. Remember, our Old Testament reading, our best deeds are like filthy rags to God. Maybe you feel like this. Maybe you feel like this because you've been trying to perform your way into God's kingdom. To you, it's been about your goodness and righteousness, not Jesus' goodness and righteousness. And remember, there's no one good, no not one. all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you. That includes me. Or as Isaiah 53:6 says, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And that's why the Lord had to lay the iniquity of, of ours on Jesus. Jesus became sin for us because He was sinless. He was the only one good. He's the only perfect sacrifice. And our New Testament reading reminds us that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not from ourselves. It is the gift of of God. It's not by works. We have no room to boast because it's not about what you and I can do or can't do. It's all about what God has done. The only way we can get to God's kingdom from here is through the cross of Christ. It's through what Jesus has done for us. Listen, the word grace means God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And grace is the only way to eternal life. Forgiveness is freely given. It must be freely received. Even if you and I could keep the law perfectly, and let's be honest here, we can't, right? We cannot keep the law perfectly. But even if we could, we'd still be lacking because salvation is never about what we do. It's about what God has done. You can't buy or barge your way into God's kingdom. You can only get there by invitation. And the invitation has been extended. It's been sent out to you. The question is how will you RSVP? With regrets? Or will you come to Jesus today to freely receive his grace? Now you may be saying, but David, wait just a minute. Didn't Jesus tell this man that he had to go sell all of his possessions, give it to the poor, and then he would be saved? Isn't that a little like works? Isn't Jesus asking this man to do something to be saved? That's a good point. Good question. What is happening here? Remember, Jesus pointed out the man was lacking something, even though he said he had fulfilled all of the law. Now, there's a commentary that put this much better than I could, so I'm just going to quote it. James Edwards wrote, wrote this. He said, How profoundly ironic is the kingdom of God. The children in the former story who possess nothing are not told. That they lack anything, but rather that the kingdom of God is there. So the children who have nothing, Jesus doesn't say you lack anything, even though they have nothing. In fact, he says the kingdom of God is yours, yet this man who possesses everything still lacks something. Only when he sells all he has, only when he becomes like a vulnerable child will he possess everything. So Jesus wasn't giving this man another legalistic thing to do, a work to perform. Rather, Jesus was exposing the false god in his heart. You see, this man thought he had kept all the commandments. He would already broken the first commandment. He had already set up a god above the Lord. He had already broken the tenth commandment of covetousness. He, he was desiring and clinging to his possessions. Jesus was asking the man to sacrifice this false god, to confess his sin, to surrender to Jesus. And that brings us to our third roadblock, the roadblock of possessions. Again, Jesus isn't giving a legalistic demand because salvation isn't about works, it's about grace. Jesus was giving this man a choice. It was an ultimatum. This man had made an idol of his possessions. And God is a jealous God. God won't share His throne with anyone or anything, much less something as petty and insignificant as money. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Money, the love of money, is the root of all evil. So You can't love money more than you love God. So this man, he had a bigger heart problem than he realized he had. And Jesus extended His invitation to the man. And the man turned it down. He made his choice. He chose to keep wealth as a roadblock between him and what he desired. Eternal life. Now I think verse 22 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away sad. He went away grieving because he had many Possessions. One author pointed out, this is the only instance of someone coming to Jesus with a need and leaving without the need being filled. Because no matter how much we're loved by God, God will never override our choices. He will never override the choices that we make. And the roadblock of wealth really is about self-reliance. Uh, It's not relying on ourselves. It's it's that I-can-do-it-myself mentality. And self-reliance keeps us from surrendering to Jesus' call to discipleship. Selling his possessions and giving them away, that was not the point. That's not what that's really about. In the words of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Jesus was calling the man to lay aside every hindrance. The sin that so easily ensnares, because we're supposed to run with endurance, the race lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. that's what this man couldn't do. His possessions were getting in the way. They they were a false god that had to be dethroned, a roadblock that had to be removed. This isn't the expectation for all of us. It's not that, that everyone who follows Jesus is supposed to sell their possessions and give them to the poor. But for this man, this is what it looked like for him to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus. It's not about dollars. It's about discipleship. It's not about wealth. It's about our walk with Jesus. Discipleship for you and me might look very different. Think about Peter, Andrew, James, and John. For them, it meant leaving behind their boats and their nets. For Matthew, it meant leaving behind his tax booth. What might Jesus be calling you to leave behind? What does self denial and cross bearing look like for you today? We all have roadblocks like this. And maybe it's not possessions, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's power. Maybe it's your position in your business or your community. Maybe it's pleasure. Those are all different forms of the same false god of self-reliance. And listen, that's a tough idol to destroy. Psalm 27 says, Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we are to trust in the name of the Lord our God. So no matter what idol of self-reliance is in your way, I pray this morning you can lay it aside. Will you lay it aside or will you walk away sad? Will you walk away grieving? Because Jesus has called you to surrender your all and trust in Him. And you may say, David, that's so hard. I'd, I'd be giving up so much. I've got so much at stake. I, I don't know how to let go and let God. The disciples wondered the same thing. They said, Jesus, if this is true, how can anyone be saved? Sometimes what Jesus asks of us seems as unreasonable And impractical and impossible as the mother of all roadblocks. A camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. Seems impossible. It's it's ludicrous. How in the world can we ever do that? But listen again, it's not about what you can do. It's not up to you. It's not about your self-importance. It's not about your self-reliance. It's not about your self-righteousness. It's about the power of God and what He can do in and through you. Because nothing is impossible for God. All you need is the faith of a child. The faith uh, the size of of a grain of a mustard seed. All you need is the faith like the father of that demon-possessed boy who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that is a prayer that Jesus will always, always answer. He will help your unbelief. He will give you the faith you need. Eternal life is only possible because God accomplishes it for us. Jesus purchased our pardon. He opens the door. He clears out the path for us. The only way we can enter into God's kingdom is to trust in Him with the faith of a poor, powerless child. Christ's riches are more than sufficient for all that we lack. And that brings us to our final roadblock, the roadblock of prosperity. Now this final roadblock is a little different. This is one that we find on the path after we've given our life to Jesus. Once we have had these other roadblocks for me. Once we've realized that I can't get to heaven based on my goodness because I'm not good. Once I realize that it's not about my, my importance and my position. It's all about trusting in what Jesus has done for me. Once we turn from our sin, put our faith in Jesus, and receive that free gift of eternal life, and we begin to walk the road with Him, that's when this final roadblock pops up. So this roadblock... It can't keep us from God's kingdom as far as our eternal security is concerned, but it can keep us from being effective in our witness. It can keep us from doing the good works that God has prepared us to do. It can keep us from experiencing the real joy of following Jesus. You see, this roadblock is a roadblock of self-interest. And self-interest will always rob us of God's real blessings. You know, it's natural, I think, like Peter, to wonder if our sacrifices have been noticed? Is it all going to be worth it in the end? Was it all in vain? Jesus had demanded much of these men. They They had left behind careers and family and property. They had left behind so much for the kingdom of God. Is it worth it? And Jesus responds that it is worth it. He responds with an affirmation that, yes, God does see and know what we sacrifice for Him. And those sacrifices do matter. Jesus says, look, in this life and in eternity, our work and witness, our sacrifice and service matter. They make a difference. But in addition to that affirmation, Jesus also offers a gentle correction, a rebuke. Because this question comes from a place of self-interest. It's a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. Jesus, look what I've done for you. What are you going to do for me? What's in it for me? And notice how Jesus offers this rebuke. He lists all of these things that we'll be blessed with. If we give up all the stuff, he says, oh, you'll, you'll you'll have houses and fields. You'll have brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers with persecution. That's sort of like one of those, what doesn't belong here? (laughs) Good things, good things, good things. Persecution. How is that a reward or a blessing for sacrificing for Jesus and following Him? More sacrifice? More suffering? Jesus is reminding us that following Him is not an easy path. In this life, there is no utopia. And faith is no insurance policy against hardship. Jesus doesn't promise us an easy life. And remember, Mark is writing to Christians being persecuted in Rome. I'm sure they had already asked themselves the very same question Peter asked. What about us, Lord? What's in it for us? Look at all we're suffering for you. What do we get in return? Now, Jesus' response here is a direct refutation of what's called the prosperity gospel. Those name-it-and-claim-it preachers on TV the ones who tell you that you can have your best life now. Jesus rejects that. Jesus says, look, it doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what all you give up, you're not promised an easy life. God oftentimes does give us more than we can handle because we're supposed to trust in Him, not ourselves. Listen, if that's what you expect from a Christian life, that kind of prosperity gospel that kind of easy life, if I'm just a good Christian and I do all the right things, everything will be great for me. Listen, you've got a roadblock. You've got a stumbling block that will keep you from really enjoying the true spiritual blessings and joy and peace that God wants to give you. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. That tells us two things. One, that tells us that we will suffer in the present. Suffering will come. But secondly, that suffering doesn't hold a candle to the glory that we will receive someday. If we're thinking of discipleship solely in terms of costs and sacrifices and what we get out of it, we're not thinking the thoughts of God, we're thinking the thoughts of men. Imagine it's your wedding day. You're standing there in front of the preacher and the congregation you're looking into the eyes of the love of your life and all you can think about is all that you're having to give up. I see that look there. (laughs) That'd be terrible. You'd be missing the point. Yet how often do we look at our faith in Jesus that way? What all are you asking me to give up? Oh, I I can't commit to helping out with that ministry because that's a Saturday something might come up. I might want to go do something else that day, so I'm not going to sign up for that. I can't teach a Sunday school class because I might have to be here more Sundays than I, I like to be here. I can't commit to working in the nursery because what if, what if I decide I want to go out of town that weekend? We think too much about what we give up and we don't consider what we'll get. How God will bless us. The kingdom of God turns our priorities upside down. Yes, it takes things from us that we would want to keep, but it gives us things that are so much better, more than we could ever imagine. And if while we're concerned with his positions and possessions and lost opportunities, we're going to end up last and lacking. But if we're, giving, if we're willing to give up our plans and our possessions and our career goals and our dreams and even our lives to follow Jesus, God will bless us with riches in Christ Jesus, with a peace that passes understanding. He will do things in our life beyond all that we could ever ask or imagine, not only in eternity, but today and tomorrow as well. What are the roadblocks in your life? What's keeping you from following Jesus? Because if you want to get to heaven, if you want to experience God's forgiving mercy, His gracious love, if you want to know the joy and the peace He promises, you can't get there from here if you're in a place of self-importance and self-righteousness and self-reliance and self-interest. You have to surrender. Surrender your pride. Stop trying to perform. Lay down your possessions and your pleasures and your positions. Stop chasing after some false idea of Christian prosperity. Which of these roadblocks do you need to ask Jesus this morning to remove from your life? As we prepare to come to this Lord's table, that's the question I want you to examine. And this morning I pray that if you've never come to faith in Jesus, if you've never put your life in His hands and trusted in what He has done for you, and received that free gift of forgiveness, I pray you would do it today. Listen, there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. There's nothing you can do to buy God's forgiveness. It is a gift He freely gives this morning. All you have to do is come like a child and receive it, and it's yours. Put your trust in Jesus. I pray you would do that today. I pray that no one leaves here this morning sad. But that you leave full of joy because you've done what God has called you to do. And listen, for those of us that are believers, that are Christians, we also have these roadblocks that come up in our life. We can have idols that want to begin to raise up in our hearts and usurp God's throne. Are we going to let them? are we going to give them to Jesus and say, Jesus, only You are the Lord of my life. Only You sit on the throne of my heart. I trust in You nothing else. And whatever you ask me to do, I will do. Even if it means I have to sacrifice something because I know it's the right thing and I know you'll bless me. What is God calling you to do? Maybe God has been calling you to unite with this church and you've been letting roadblocks get in the way. I pray that Jesus will clear them out for you this morning. Maybe for you, you've been a Christian, but you've not been baptized and you're just embarrassed by that. I'm an adult. I've not been baptized. Who cares? Let Jesus remove that roadblock. Come and make public that profession of faith. Maybe God has even been calling you into full-time Christian service or to volunteer and commit yourself to a ministry in this church But you've had your excuses, you've had your reasons, you've had your roadblocks. Let Jesus take them away today. Or else you can't get there from here. Would you pray with me? Would you stand as well? Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the beauty and the truth of your word. We're thankful that you are a God of grace and mercy. We're thankful that you don't have any notions of us other than being weak, helpless, poor children. You don't ask us to be sophisticated. You don't ask us to clean up our lives or get our ducks in a row. You only ask us to come as we are. You want to be our friend, you want to forgive our sins. You want to open the door to eternal life for us. If there's anyone here today that needs to do that, I pray they would come. If there's anyone that needs to unite with this church or surrender to your call in whatever way, I pray they would come. If there's anyone who just needs to come and to lay one of these roadblocks down on this altar and leave it behind, I pray they would come. And I pray you prepare our hearts and minds to receive the elements of this Lord's Supper table. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.